0: This is Comms Day Live, I'm Graham Lynch. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a sponsored interview with CSG, where we take a look at what telco will be like in the year 2030. We'll be chatting with Rowan Pierce and Simon Ducks, our editors, about the week that was in telco. We hear an excerpt from the Foxtel Strategy Day and a revealing Optus session on how they viewed the development of 5G. But first... A dangerous private members' bill generating interest across the coalition backbench which would severely harm the telecom industry should it ever come to fruition. The Telecommunications Reform, Telstra, NBN and Other Providers Bill 2021 was released this week by Liberal backbench MP Julian Lisa. He represents the outer Sydney seat of Barowra, which covers suburbs and rural areas surrounding the Hawkesbury River, such as Dural and Mount Keringai. Now, Lisa has long campaigned for better telecommunication services, even prompting the creation earlier this year of a $16.4 million peri-urban mobile program. Peri-urban being the word that describes areas that are in transition zones between cities and rural areas. But even that's not enough. He's been threatening a bill On the customer service issue, and he's released it. And it proposes a number of sweeping regulatory obligations on the telco sector. I'll give you a few examples. Mobile telcos would be engaging in deceptive conduct where they advertised coverage, and a signal was not available in a majority of indoor rooms in a residence or the majority of an indoor working area. There would be a universal service mobile obligation to provide a minimum of 3G indoor coverage to every residential premise in Australia. Telstra would be the primary USO provider. All mobile operators would be required to have 12 hour battery backup on base stations. 3G must be maintained as a service unless the 4G or 5G coverage that replaces it is the same or superior. If failure to comply with this clause resulted in the risk of or actual death of a customer, the telco could be fined up to $222 million and individual executives held personally responsible with fines of up to $11 million. A new customer service guarantee Would mandate a maximum of five minutes on hold, call durations for service inquiries, and complete refunds for outages of six hours or more. There'd also be a requirement uh, for ACMA to mandate continuous improvement obligations on Telco customer service. There would be a replacement of the Telecom Industry Ombudsman, currently appointed by a board representing a cross section of industry, consumer, and governance, governance experts with a telecom ombudsman appointed directly by the minister, but most notable, an extraordinary proposed power that would oblige telcos to nominate so-called accountable persons on their board and management structures, such as the CEO, CFO, and CIO, they would be responsible in a personal sense for compliance with the laws. If ACMA didn't think that you'd pitch the right people in your company to be the accountable persons, it can direct you to do so. And most extraordinarily, if these executives and board members are judged to have failed their requirements under this proposed bill, their remuneration could be effectively cancelled, 60% of bonuses and 40% of total compensation if they fail to comply with the new rules. So anyway, let's hear from Julian Lisa himself explaining the bill to Ben Fordham of 2GB.
1: Uh, And I think we need three things. I think we need better infrastructure. I think we need uh, better customer service. And I think we need more accountability for the telco executives. Uh, And I decided that it was important to show the colour of my money. So I, I put up this private member's bill. Um, It's being released today on a website, telcoreform.com.au. It's an exposure draft, so we want people to comment on it and tell us what they think of it. And uh, many of my colleagues have have joined me in supporting this because this is a genuine issue across the country. Um, The telecommunications um, companies are focused on their profits. They're not focused on the customers. Too many people have situations where they've been on hold for hours, where they've had no service and still get charged. And in a bushfire-prone area like, uh, like my electorate, I'm particularly worried that the telcos don't take these issues seriously enough. And that's why we've got the particularly strong provisions there that where a coroner finds that but for the actions of a telco during a natural disaster, uh, somebody's death was preventable, that the telcos would be financially liable.
0: Okay, now... Lisa named 16 other backers for this bill, including a former regional communications minister, Mark Colton. All up, there's uh, five nationals and 11 Liberals supporting this bill. Some of those Liberals are from urban areas. So, John Alexander from Benelon in Sydney, um, Sarah Henderson, who's based in Geelong in Victoria. Um we're talking about 15 percent of the coalition party room here. So this is not some random private member's bill distant for oblivion. There's a really real chance, a very real chance, that some or all of this could end up in regulation or law. But here's the problem of this bill. It's unworkable. In practice, it would create massive disincentives for people to invest in or work in the industry. And it also portrays an astonishing ignorance of how telecommunications works. Let's look, for example, at the mandated level of service where a signal needs to be available in most of the rooms of an indoor environment. The simple fact is that cell coverage breathes, it expands, it recedes, depending on a multiplicity of environmental and usage factors that are near impossible to quantify. So let's say you want to nab a telco and it's management because someone died in a fire and they never made that triple triple zero call. How do you prove the negative? Are we going to taint people with the inference of manslaughter for the rest of their lives because the coverage in that location was retrospectively found to be wanting on a bad day? Are we going to strip hundreds of millions of dollars in fines from a telco that will simply come off their capex and opex budgets or lead to price rises? Is Mr. Lisa aware of how Wi-Fi fills the coverage gap inside buildings and why Wi-Fi exists in the first place? Does he understand the role satellite has traditionally played and will increasingly play in delivering coverage in hard-to-serve locations? Does he understand that an obligation on Telstra to provide indoor mobile coverage to every residential premise in Australia would cost billions upon billions of dollars, a fantasy that the NBN, even at its craziest face in 2009, never contemplated. This bill is an astonishingly illiberal intervention into a broadly successful and already heavily regulated industry. It won't help a thing. Here's one reaction from a small ISP, or some giant like Telstra, but Greg Lipschitz, who's the uh, CEO of Summit Internet. He wrote this on LinkedIn, quote, "'This sort of rubbish from politicians makes me so angry. Unless they are going to fund, own and operate the infrastructure and take on the liability, why would any private enterprise want to take on the risk of such a bill impacting their companies, directors, and ultimately shareholders?' Whilst I agree that building infrastructure and maintaining it is essential, I feel it's completely unrealistic that they can mandate coverage and put expectations of things like extended battery backup, which is ultimately a commercial decision of the operator, unless the government are going to fund it, which ultimately costs the taxpayer. In natural disasters, I am going to make sure my staff are going to be safe when going into repair infrastructure in those areas every day over the speed of recovery and restoration of service if staff are injured at work then i am personally liable as a company director where do we draw the line here end of quote greg is right this is a terrible bill a sick joke even down to the seemingly innocuous things like the requirement to answer a call in 5 minutes or face the wrath of big stick penalties we tried calling Julian Elise's Lisa's parliamentary office on Thursday to get more detail on the bill. No answer. So we phoned and emailed the electorate office. All we got was busy signals and no email response. On a big day where the MP wanted media attention, he couldn't return an email or guide us in the right direction. Not as easy as it seems, hey? In fact, under his new law, he would have been docked around 40% of his pay for that. Now, moving on to our sponsored interview with CSG, they've got a really interesting concept they've developed about telecommunications in the year 2030. They've done a bit of thinking about how we get from where we are now to where we're heading. And of course, that's only nine years. So that uh, will go past in the blink of an eye. Now, their convention is that we have a lot of innovation in the consumer space right now, and that's going to permeate into other areas of the economy over the next few years so to talk about that I'm joined by Haifa Oashka who's the director of strategy telecommunications markets and solutions for CSG globally welcome
2: Thank you Graeme. thank you for having me
0: fantastic now tell me about this concept of Telco 2030 what's it all about
2: so it's a concept that we've had that we've been discussing with a lot of our um, CSP customers um, and with analysts. And it's anchored in the thought process that we've had the last couple of decades um, uh, focused on consumer and consumer innovation, social, mobile, analytic, cloud, have all driven a very consumer-centric world, which has been fantastic. But we're now going to start to see the ongoing consequence of that, where uh, the businesses who have to serve consumers are now being impacted by that digitization and that disruption. And so we feel now as we enter a new decade and in telecommunications specifically, we're entering a new network evolution anchored in 5G and that 5G and that decade, and given where we've come from, we feel is gonna be definitively focused on B2B, ecosystems, collaboration, co-creation are gonna be the dominant themes.
0: So why specifically B2B? Why do you think the future is anchored there?
2: So this is actually a really interesting one because there are two parts to this. The natural part is that um, we're now... Um, seeing a period of time where businesses, whether they 're healthcare their retail their airlines, are all feeling the digital disruption and need help with their digital transformations and so from a cSP perspective and a telecom perspective it 's an opportunity for the carriers to serve those businesses and offer and help them in those transformations whether it 's contact centered transformations and digitizing it um, with their um, unified comms capabilities and solutions to a range of things. But 5G specifically also helps escalate IoT. And IoT, I mean, you'll recognize from your smart watch to a smart car is really about a group of different players who come together, players who provide devices, players who provide, provide the smart application, players who provide the connectivity, And again, that is a consortium of businesses coming together, creating that that play on on B2B. But that in itself then leaves you with the following. In order for carriers to serve their customer base, whether they be consumer or business who need transformation help, the carriers are going to need rich portfolios to help that manufacturing company um, drive more automation, they'll need to partner with many other companies. And so what we're gonna see is the carrier working with many businesses and hence many B2B relationships, serving many more businesses and helping them with their transformations. And even consumer use cases like gaming is gonna be back ended with B2B relationships and collaborations.
0: Okay, now it strikes me there's a lot of differences between being successful in B2C and being successful in B2B. A lot of challenges if you really want to make a big difference there. So what are some of the different approaches that telcos might have to um, embark upon to be successful?
2: And maybe the best way to describe this is to use Netflix. I I, I love referring to them because everyone recognises them. And they have a two-sided business model. On, on the consumer side, they taught us the industry, the importance of a seamless omnichannel experience, And, and really simplifying between Netflix and Uber, they, what they really did is they, they simplified the process, they stripped down a lot of the complexity, a lot of the options made it much easier for you to engage. Um, so Uber took out a lot of payment models out of their process and just made it much more streamlined. And so we learned, we learned a lot from them in B2C. Now, it would be a mistake to think that in B2B you would follow the same process, that you would strip away capabilities, strip away functionality. In B2B, in order to collaborate, in order to co-create in these ecosystems, you actually working with multi-party, multi-geography, multi-sites. It's going to be very, very complex. Um, and in fact, the, the Netflix example is so successful in consumer because it's back-ended by one of the most powerful B2B ecosystems where they work with many studios, with many um, agencies, even CSPs to host and collect that information, so, um, and some, and including their competitors. So they work very closely with Amazon to host some of their stuff and use their recommendation engine. So it teaches us a lot about what it takes to be successful in B2B and in ecosystems and it is anchored in rich capability. So the question is, if you don't strip away, what do you do to be successful in B2B and in ecosystems? And the answer actually lies in, you need interoperability, you need standardization so that all parties can talk a common language and can communicate and scale much more effectively. And so that is going to be one side of the key ingredient, the other side is rich, rich functionality, rich capability in how you sell, how you fulfil, even how you monetize those solutions with, your, with the various parties that you're engaging with.
0: Okay, well, some fantastic wisdom there from Haifa from CSG. Of course, it's not too early to be thinking about 2030. The entire telecommunications industry works in decade-long cycles. We're already planning for 6G. And, you know, the current DOCSA standards for HFC are evolving to an endpoint as well. It's probably quite a salient time at the start of a decade to be thinking about where we're going to be at the end of it. So, thank you very much for joining us today. Now, on to Foxtel. They had a big investor day this week to talk up their progress in their transformation into a streaming company. They have an incredibly strong story to tell there. In fact, I hear they've become a case study for the Harvard Business Review, so because there's no greater vindication than that. They have lots of new subscribers in the streaming space and new streaming products to come. And this is all apparently in the context of a yet-to-be-announced IPO, Coxtel CEO Patrick Delaney discussed all this and more at their Investor Day.
3: And IPOs are look. It's a matter for the shareholders. Um, the, the mission that I've been given is to, to make sure the investment community, people that invest in our shareholders, uh, understand the value that we have delivered and the transformation journey that we're on. Um, I think that the, the company is a very, very different company to the company that we started with four years ago. Uh, we used to have one line of business, and that was Foxtel. People were asking the question, will Australians pay for content? And I think the the, the fact that we've, we've, we've taken what was a negative, being uh, the penetration of subscription TV in Australia, and said, well, hey, that means that we can get to the other 75 per cent through scre- streaming, and we've grabbed it. And so that's transformed the subscriber numbers in our reach. It's transformed the revenues that we're getting. Um, And you combine that with COVID, and and it's it's really then been a moment where we can transform our cost base and our tech base. Now,
0: moving on to Optus, another company going through a big transformation right now with the deployment of their 5G network. Their head of 5G, Harvey Wright, fronted an Engineers Australia webinar this week where he talked about uh, 5G and what he saw as some of its use cases. It was a very interesting insight into how Optus sees the market.
4: So if I think about, you know, from an Optus perspective, how we are approaching the the opportunity that is 5G and how we are going to drive a level of monetization, because remember, at the end of the day, 5G is a major investment for a a company like uh, Optus. There are sort of three core pillars that we are uh, focusing on. The first is around innovation. We have yet to to, um, uncover or or identify the killer app. and therefore there's a, a great opportunity for organizations like us and our partners to get out there and to innovate in a in a customer-centric and, and, and purpose-driven way to uh, identify those and unlock those and co-create those. So 5G I've seen described um, uh, by many commentators as a, as a platform for innovation, this sort of testbed, this sort of foundation on which we can start to develop really exciting, really innovating services. Um, The second key pillar is is one of of focus. Um, With a a wide range of opportunities and and many, you know, horses to back, as it were, it's really important that we um, zero in on on those areas that that we can add the most value to, um, you know, identifying where we've got key strengths, where we can, you know, deliver that level of um, uh, sustained differentiation uh, to create long-term value for um, our shareholders and our, and our and our customers, and then the final one is around partnership. Now, as you probably gathered from that chart before, uh, I showed before, um, you know, many of those applications, whether it's in healthcare or utility or manufacturing or, or, or mining, um, are, are things that we're going to have to work very closely with um, our customers, our enterprise customers, to uh, develop. So, you know, we're looking to. Uh, establish a, um, an ongoing level of um, co-creation with a, a range of, of, of partners and customers uh, within, within industry. So we have in, in place a range of um, uh, initiatives around engaging with enterprise customers. Um, the government is also involved in terms of um, uh, participating as a, as, a, as a funder, as a partner of, of 5G innovation as well. I think a great example of this was you know, some of the recent uh, government grants that have been uh, established around some innovation projects that that we've partnered with. Um, example of one of those is is the uh, partnership we've done with um, uh, Amazon and 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 Endeavor Energy for the application of five G for drones and, and the monitoring of uh, an electricity grid. So you know uh, rather than lots of folks climbing up poles and and inspecting pylons. You do it remotely. You do it using um, uh, streamed uh, video and telemetry of, of the power grid itself. So again, a great example of of various partners coming together, each with a variety of different strengths, to define uh, an opportunity. Um, and and I think in, in in that case, you know, it doesn't take much to imagine a situation where rather than drones inspecting a, a electricity utility, you have uh, you know a water utility or um, a local government agency or a mining company. So again, once you've unlocked the the, the use case, the the potential for application in other areas uh, consumes surface as well.
0: Well, moving on, uh, taking a look at the week that was with Simon Ducks, the chief editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Now you did um some massive coverage this week on the Australian Communications and Media Authority's latest 5-year spectrum outlook. There was a lot to unpack from that so, from that. So please take us through it.
5: Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, as you know, the document, uh, we've been uh, waiting for this for uh, for a little while. It's uh, come out. Uh, it uh, re- essentially outlines the priorities that ACMA has for the next five years in managing Spectrum and their work program and what the key milestones are and uh, what the upcoming potential auctions are and so on. So we're looking at the period 21 to 26, and there were some uh, interesting uh, surprises that came out of it, mostly around uh, some of the stuff that they're actually really doing Uh, around pricing, Uh, and this is the fact that there's going to be a lot more consultation on that front just because of the fact that they've had a lot of industry feedback uh, to that event. But uh, I'll try and pick out some of the highlights. I mean, it it was uh, quite the tone, Uh, but uh, there's going to be a little bit more work in um, uh, the allocation, timing, and sequencing in the 3700 to 4200 megahertz uh, and they're going to be prioritizing the consideration of 700 megahertz band for the review of spectrum license technical frameworks. And what that means is they're having a really close look at all of the 5G uh, uh, potential spectrum and uh, mapping how, how that's going to look uh, between uh, what potentially the mobile operators are asking for and also uh, on the other side what the um, satellite industry is also looking to protect and also uh, for itself. So uh, if you can imagine, um, uh, ACMA has launched a 5G work program to review uh, all of this, and uh, that that will be kicking off, uh, I I think, immediately. And uh, what uh, ACMA was at pains to do was to suggest that when they do a lot of their methodology, it's going to be always on the highest value use assessment uh, to make a decision on uh, who gets what spectrum, essentially. They said uh, this approach has worked well for the uh, 3700, 4200 megahertz and the two gigahertz band reviews, and they're going to use that again in the 850, 900 megahertz band allocation, uh, which is coming up very soon as well, and that one's going to be hotly contested as well. Uh, looking uh, a little bit uh, further ahead uh, onto six gigahertz, and if you remember, that was the one that the uh, uh, a lot of the US vendors uh, banded together, and they said they'd love the whole 1200 megahertz uh, to be uh, set aside for unlicensed use, uh, mainly for uh, Wi-Fi, and uh, that this is exactly what's happened uh, in the US. Uh, ACMA has uh, essentially. Sat back and uh, is following more the uh, other international approach, which is a little bit more aligned with the ITU, where the top half of that spectrum is potentially still being considered uh, as a possible future uh, 5G uh, spectrum as well. So uh, that is going to be um, considered as part of the 6 gigahertz review and the initial outcomes will be identified by the end of 2021. Uh, with the work on uh, defragmentation of 3400 to 3575 megahertz is on track uh, as well. They're going to set aside a little chunk of that for apparatus license spectrum as well for regional areas and wireless broadband use. They're going to do similar 300 megahertz of uh, Spectrum set aside in the 374200 for wireless broadband for a range of different uses and uses, including private 5G, which would be quite interesting. The satellite guys uh, are obviously um, a little bit concerned about that, and to mollify uh, the complaints there, they're going to have coordinated fixed satellite service uh, for a significant part of that band and for earth station protection zones, uh, which allow for FSS across the whole band. Uh, The other two key things uh, that you could say uh, were uh, a little bit of legislative reform, and this is uh, the fact that uh, because ACMA is now looking at uh, whether or not to renew the spectrum licences, essentially they're now going to consider renewals five years from expiry, with an outcome being identified no later than two years from expiry. So uh, what that means is that the the two uh, spectrum that are coming up uh, to expire m- most uh, or in the nearest horizon is uh, June 2028, and that's 850 megahertz and 1,800 megahertz. And uh, finally, as I mentioned at the uh, outset, was the pricing, um, and it's basically because of uh, the spectrum pricing review. Um, they've already put a tranche of changes in, which essentially has put uh, tax deduction for 5 gigahertz uh, of up to 50 to 90%, uh, which uh, has been uh, received well uh, in the industry. And uh, they're also aligning a long ongoing work program for spectrum pricing review with other licensing and pricing initiatives, such as the early transactional access to the winning bidders of the 850-900 megahertz band auction. And uh, finally, uh, uh, I will uh, also pick up one or two uh, satellite interesting uh, points. Uh, One was the fact that uh, ACMA is one of the few jurisdictions in the world that actually Um, legislates up to uh, 420 terahertz which essentially is approaching photonics and near infrared uh, as uh, we did a story a couple of months back and uh, they have essentially said to the satellite industry that they're going to have another look at uh, this and they're going to make sure that they're going to um, act on the pricing of uh, some of the uh, licenses there so I think that's going to be good news for anybody looking at optical ground stations.
0: Okay, well, it's good news that they'll no longer be taxing light. (laughs) Exactly. Good to hear. Um, Moving on, um, a Telstra executive this week had some interesting things to say about how um, the emergence of hyperscaling and 5G is going to radically change job descriptions and job definitions in telcos. Tell us about that.
5: That's right. It was uh, Telstra's Group Executive, Networks and IT, Nikos Katanakis, uh, who was uh, speaking at the Telemanagement Forum's Digital Transformation World Series. And uh, what he was essentially describing was a new world where every single job in telco is going to have to change to some degree – to actually be successful in this world. And uh, he uh, outlaid some areas where uh, Telstra has already made a lot of these changes and uh, growth areas that they see that some of these jobs will be. And they're going to be things like cloud engineers, data engineers, security, software development, and some uh, network engineering capability. You can imagine as we're moving to a world of virtualization and software containers and Kubernetes, and uh, you put all of that together, and try and manage that, uh, it becomes uh, a very, very different-looking uh, uh, environment to the telco silos that uh, run in a lot of carriers. Now, t- obviously, we know Telstra's been uh, working a lot of this on their T22. Uh, they've just announced their T25 transformation program. This is going to be central to that. And uh, as Nikos pointed out, they've already taken out more than $2.5 billion worth of costs in the last three years, despite overall uh, work not reducing, essentially. So you can see even uh, that, uh, that every telco has to run uh, just to stay stationary, if you like. So the, the key thing that he was talking about also was the uh, relationship ongoing with uh, hyperscaler partners and how that might look, because uh, traditionally telcos in comparison to hyperscalers have looked rather complex, and so they have to radically simplify their service wraps and uh, their go-to-market when they're talking to key enterprises, particularly multinationals. So he pointed out that Telstra's approach to this was to have an absolute partnership with the three hyperscalers, um, the big three, uh, as we know them, and uh, he said that if you do that, then you can have unified go-to-market models, co-creation of services, and you can identify problems that you can solve together. And uh, interestingly, he pointed out uh, that uh, Telstra co-founded the 5G Future Forum with uh, five other big telcos, including Verizon, um, specifically to standardize the way telcos interact with the hyperscalers, which uh, is interesting because uh, a lot of uh, people thought it was just going to become another standards organization. And uh, what he essentially said there was that these guys are an integral part of the future of all telcos and we have to work out a way to integrate with them all. And as a a byproduct of that, he suggested that resilience uh, will become a monetizable differentiator because he imagines that the future network is going to be a lot more distributed than it is today. Uh, So a lot of uh, compute at the edge. And uh, because of that, um, this, in this distributed network, what you try and aim to do is build up these things small blast zones. So if you have a particular problem, you can isolate it pretty quickly and it will impact as few people as possible. And again, that's quite a different model emerging.
0: Mm, okay, fascinating stuff. Okay, well, thank you very much, Simon. Have a great long weekend. And to you as well, Graham. Enjoy. Now, last but definitely not least, Rowan Pearce, the Executive Editor of Comms Day, joins us. How are you, Rowan? I'm good, Graham. How are you? I'm I'm not least. I'm 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 pretty good, actually. I'm looking forward to the long weekend. I know, Um, me too.
6: I'm so excited.
0: (laughs) Because all those things we can do. Um, Now, you, you had a very interesting story at the top of the week regarding Telstra moving to reclaim control of its retail stores. Tell us more.
6: Yeah, so this was a bit of, bit of a milestone, really, with Telstra basically striking a deal with Vita Group, who I believe is the largest Telstra store licensee. Basically, they're going to pay Vita Group $110 million to take back 104 Telstra-branded retail stores. So this kind of comes on the heels of Telstra's announcement in February that it will take control of its entire retail network. Um, the other thing that Telstra told me actually was that they've got a, around 150 other licensed stores, which have either been like shifted to Telstra control or, you know, the the operators have agreed to shift them to Telstra's control. So, I mean, obviously, like Vita Group, because of its size, took quite a bit of negotiation. But assuming its shareholders back this deal, it should be signed off in November. So it's going to be really kind of a, a landmark moment in the transformation of the Telstra retail network. I think um, one one interesting little detail of the deal is that Telstra also picks up this kind of accessory, like phone accessories brand, uh, Sprout, as part of the deal because they took the whole Vita Group ICT division. So it's going to be kind of interesting what Telstra does with that kind of Sprout brand. Um, the other interesting thing, I guess, to watch, like after the deal completes, which, I mean, assuming Vita Group shareholders go for it, which you you think they will, um, uh, you know, how how is Telstra going to implement is kind of transformation of its retail network that I spoke about at its uh, investor day, I guess, um, you know, taking control of all these stores, give it actually, you know, Australian terms, quite a significant sized retail network. And it's already kind of hinted at some of the, you know, things it's going to use that for in terms of like adding more services, like device repair and that kind of thing. So it will be interesting to
0: watch. Mm, okay. Now, as we've just been talking, Rowan, in the past few minutes, Optus has announced the sale of its towers to Australian Super for $1.9 billion. Actually, it's a 70% stake in what, yeah. Yeah, what they call the Australia Tower Network. It's wholly owned subsidiary. So we're talking about a company that has 2,300 mobile network towers and rooftop sites. Um, it values the entire company at $2.3 billion, which is pretty pretty decent valuation. And, of course, Optus will be the anchor tenant um, uh, for for, for this company. And apparently, it's going to build 565 new base station sites over the next three years. So, it's It's, got a bit of an investment, too.
6: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, obviously, as I was saying before, this follows, like, you know, Telstra early in the year was first off the mark, um, kind of, you know, I won't say offloading its towers because it's still obviously owned yeah. a chunk of them. But obviously it follows that. But then at the same time I've got TPG Telecom two, which is like launched a strategic review of its tower assets. So we may we may end up in a situation obviously where all all, you know, three mobile network operators have flogged off a large portion of the ownership of their kind of like towers. And I guess the um the kind of bit of context is that there's so much money floating around at the moment looking for opportunities to invest in digital infrastructure. Which is part of the whole Telstra Infraco play. So it's kind of like, you know, what's what's going to be next in terms of like monetizing some of that infrastructure?
0: Yeah. And of course, it's, it's, it's good stuff for Singtel as well. They're going to get about $1.9 billion in, in uh, net cash proceeds after transaction costs. They say it will enhance their cash flow and balance sheet flexibility, support the acceleration of uh, the 5G deployment in Australia and other Optus growth initiatives, such as Living Network. So um, a, a good deal there for CEO hey, Kelly Bayer rosmarin
6: Yeah, I, I think the only interesting thing would be, um, for me, is like, you know, Telstra in particular, I remember I spoke about, you know, trying to increase the tenancy um, ratios on their towers. And I guess, you know, you would assume that, um, you know, this new, um, what was it called? Uh, Australian, what's the company's name? Australia after?
0: Tower Network.
6: Australia Tower Network, how could, how could I forget? Um, obviously be interesting to see if they kind of they're trying to push to increase their tenancy numbers too i guess um you know are we going to see some kind of uh uh, competition emerge on the tower side of things
0: yeah yeah they do they do talk of being an anchor tenant which does suggest that there's room for others (laughs) and that they're seeking others so um anyway that's an interesting development to finish the week and uh thank you for joining us rowan cheers take it easy graham Well, that's it for Comms Day Live this week. Hope you enjoyed this extended edition. See you next time.